0: Uh, Vick, if you could describe the highlight of your day so far.
1: The highlight of my day so far was scrambled eggs for breakfast.
0: You've had time for breakfast.
1: I make time for breakfast. <laughs> the most important meal of the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and Becky?
1: See you two.
0: Oh, you crawler. You... <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast, your half-hour dynamic download of all that's good in the Labour movement, with me, Simon Sapper. <laughs>
2: and me, Becky Wright.
0: Come on, Becky, stop <laughs> coursing.
2: <laughs> and we start as we mean to go on, everyone. Oh, Listeners, you're
0: very welcome to this latest edition of the podcast. Becky, what have you been up to?
2: Well, I've hot-footed it from this morning to the Bec- from the Bec- to 2 uh, launch of their diversity in theatre uh, plan. And, and I just wanted to kind of give it a shout out because it was really lovely to see the union do something really practical around uh, diversity in the theatre industry and part of the creative uh, industries in general. They've, they've got 90 employers signed up to uh, work on their plan and it's more than just, oh, diversity is a problem in the theatre world. It's diversity is a problem here are the facts that back it up, and here's what we think local unions and employers should do and how they can do it to uh, address some of the challenges. So it's 90
0: employees, nine zero. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. that's they, quite they that, that degree of organisation amongst employers is kind of well, <laughs> useful in itself.
2: You know, we, I, it got me thinking when we spoke to Charlotte, Spent from equity about low pay, no pay, and we were talking about the fact that what's quite useful for the creative unions is there is already some sort of organisation of the employers, so they can kind of come together to do really kind of big picture things like this.
0: But the but if you've got a almost like a toolkit, a practically yeah. based nice toolkit tool on 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 inclusion, then. Y- you can take that almost anywhere. You don't have to have a confederation of employers to engage with. You need it to draw up the standard, no. I suppose, but you can take that wherever now.
2: Yeah, you, they, they can go into any workplace and use that, but it is very good that from the get-go they've got a, a whole kind of roster of employers who are willing to do that to kind of have that change in the industry.
0: Well, that's a hats off to Betsy. That's a, that's, a, that's a good one. And, and listeners, we'll be coming back to that idea about unions working with employers. The employer incentive to actually engage constructively uh, with unions in one of our podcasts in early 2019. Woo! stay tuned. <laughs> not that long,
2: though. <laughs> People just staying by their podcast providers, kind of like, give me that now. Hey, it we're good, we're, we're not that
0: good. So, uh, with us listeners, with, with Becky and I, we're very delighted to have Victoria Barlow. Vic, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Glad, glad to have you on. Vic has spent, ooh, best part, of 20 years working in trade unions and education. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's only when I count it up I look back and yeah. go, is this my life? And then I realise, yes, this is actually my life. It's that thing when you go, ooh, 2002, 2001, that wasn't that long ago. And then you go, that was. Yeah, that's half my lifetime. Right? <laughs>
0: and most recently was assistant general secretary at the newly formed National Education Union so therefore has a, has what you don't know about comms and marketing and stuff like that probably isn't worth knowing i guess
1: and membership systems and rules and amalgamation procedures and <laughs> negotiations and staffing structures
0: <laughs> well i read i read Good a Q&A. I I read a Q and A with you, Vic, in which you said one of the the key things is you need to constantly survey the landscape, and you need to be flexible and uh, adaptable enough to, you know, to to adjust your footwork. Is that, I mean, is, is that the cardinal rule of successful membership engagement?
1: I think um, because my my original union was the Association of Teachers and Lecturers, and we were always the third largest union, we always had to review what we were doing, how and when, and part of that was looking at our landscape. We always had fewer members, we always had fewer reps, therefore how could we be the best within the, the sector in which we Um, organised and I made sure that the team that we had around us and working very closely with the membership team and the organising team that we were very aware of what was happening in workplaces just as much as what was happening with governance and also what was happening with um, new ways of reaching members through new and emerging communications, digital channels and also any technology we could use for membership systems. So it's a real mix of understanding what is going on in the wider world that you you can access. But also for us, Association of Teachers Lecturers, ATL, when it was time to look at moving towards working with another union, we'd done a lot of work at looking at our membership numbers because we were the smallest union. We always had to look at where we could get more members, where we could get more reps, and we had to see what, what was changing in front of us. And a lot of that was down to what the coalition government put in initially with changing the ways of school structures from... Local authorities to to mats and so mats may only have one two three schools in which really um, hit uh, multi,
0: sorry multi academy trust multi academy trust
1: what you don't know <laughs> <laughs> what is this so yeah we had to look we had to look very carefully at where um, our members were needing support in in their workplace mm-hmm. activity in their pain, uh, working condition negotiations and we were just too stretched and we were stretched uh, as a union as ATL but I'm pretty sure most of the education unions were finding the same thing themselves. You, did, you weren't negotiating with one authority for 2,500 schools. You were negotiating with 2,500 employees, yeah. employers.
0: This kind of balkanisation of, of things that are in the public sector is essentially is a, is a common theme, I think, that mm. unions have encountered.
1: For
2: me, talking to Vic is always like a breath of fresh air for two reasons. The, the first one is when I came to ATL, I mean, I've, I'm have organised or die. I mean, I've always been like what do members want, what we are going to do, how are we going to do it? And whenever I'd kind of interacted with a communications department, it always seemed a bit us and them. Like, Mm. the language that we wanted to use as organisers was at odds with kind of how the union was setting itself out. Neither really understood what the job was. And when I came into ATL, I found it really, really kind of a bit of a breath of fresh air almost, because... I think you'd just come in, or you'd been in for a little while, but you sort of taught the language of organisers. You, you, You know what, you were like, let's get back down to the kind of core of all of these sorts of things and think about how we affect people in their everyday sort of lives. And it really influenced my sort of thinking about how... I've never really liked the dichotomy between organising and servicing. I much prefer thinking about it in terms of being strategic and effective and pumping stuff out. And within this kind of the senior management team that I experienced at ATL, of which I think you you were a massive part of that, is just how all of those little bits kind of came together and you sort of all worked very well to kind of have that vision that we could all... Get behind. It, really? uh, and
0: was that was that a was that a battle? Was that a fight? Because I, I know that that one, one of the things you, you seem to be fond and proud and with, with good cause of, of saying is it's an integrated effort. And, uh, yeah. How difficult was it to, to break down silos?
1: Well, when I started, we were working um, slightly siloed. Policy would we'll be doing, employing their furrow, legal theirs, organising theirs, and comms theirs. And mm. I saw those four departments as the absolute core of what the member offer would be. And I worked very hard, like Becky says, just to get back to actually the basics of what does a member want? When do they want it and how? And what, and what do they think about us? And why would they join us? And why would they pay money? And why would they stay? And why would they engage? So what I did was I worked very closely with my colleagues at Work Take. Mary, at the time, had done a lot of work to start thinking about an an organisation that was integrated, that the the member journey was at the heart of everything we did. But what I tried to do with the comms work was was to knit it all together in an operational fashion. So we would be, um, you wouldn't start with comms, you would start with organising. What is, you know, what do members need in their workplaces? What are the issues that they feel most widely Mm. and deeply? Because fundamentally, I can sell that. I could sell that back to them as a cause of why you'd want to be a member.
0: Yeah, but I mean, but, but I mean you're, you're talking, and we, I think we're all talking very comfortably about certain concepts that I think are really challenging, if not absolutely left field, for some membership organisations, trade unions mm. included, the notion of a member offer. Well, you just join, don't you? I mean, you know, it's why, a, why your local you? rep, and, and you just need a local <laughs> rep to make sure you sign everyone up. And it's obvious why why you don't. And if, if you don't join, it's because you haven't been asked, and that's it. Uh,
1: that, yeah. that, the the yeah. second
0: yeah. thing is so the concept yeah. of a member offer is, is kind of an interesting one. Uh, and, and then there's the, the concept of understanding what members want as well. The practical way in which so you were able to understand what members wanted because and, and the way that was able to inform your thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, what were the techniques that you used to get that level of understanding?
1: Well, it's um, it's not rocket science. You just go and ask them. You work with the organising team to figure out the issues that matter most in the workplaces, um, the barriers to um, the becoming um, active, for example. Um, I, I will give Claire Bradford, our national organiser, props for this. Mm-hmm. She realised the reason why we weren't getting reps in is because they were saying to them, we're too busy. We've got problems with workload. So we said, what can we do to alleviate your workload for you as an individual you and your workplace you with your employer and you with government and one of the things we put in place was the, the workload tracker where members could track their yeah, work that's
2: really good. Mm. we would give them advice mm. about
1: what they could do as individuals and how to talk to your boss about reducing that workload and then we aggregated all the results and we took them to government and said now look here <laughs> this, is not, this is not really working out for our members. And as a result, you've got a recruitment and retention crisis. What are you going to do about that? And over a long period of time, and, I mean, and a multi-union push... We managed to change some attitudes um, towards workload. But it is, it, is, it is that thing about understanding what your members need, what they're prepared to do for you, for you within mm. the union, mm. and, and the value for money, because it's not cheap being in a union. And do you know what? When they're in the workplace doing their daily work under a lot of uh, pressure, they're not actually thinking about, oh, hang on a minute, I should really become a rep. Why don't I do a bit of casework? <laughs> you? Know, it's oh, not. It's not. It's not at the forefront of their mind. So you have no. to make yourselves no. relevant to them, mm. and also you have to demonstrate back to them that you've listened to them. Not only in the in the offer, as I call it, because I think the offer is 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 part servicing. Because what quality legal advice and support do you get, as well as the organising and I'd say campaigning offer about how can you make your voice heard in your workplace, in your local community on an issue that you care about. Mm. But once you've seen the impact of what you've done for your members, it's the comms team's responsibility to go back out and celebrate that, either through really strong media work Mm. um, or through good comms back to members that says, look, because of you, these are things that we achieved or walking back into government and going, look, our members have told us these things, and as a result, you've changed these things. Thanks very much. What can we do together to move things forward? And and, um, this was...
2: I think a, a great example of why I've always really warmed to Rick's approach with doing comms is because she used the terms about widely felt and deeply felt, and I think you, I think you must have used it in a meeting, and I go, oh yes, she I <laughs> like, like her, uh. um, and it, it is that whole idea of really seeing widely felt, deeply felt, winnable, visible, and knitting that together as a organisation, or a union offer. Do you know what I yes. mean? Like so that every Single department, everybody within that can sort of mm. understand that concept, how it relates to members and the other thing I think is that often the idea of what are we offering people as members, so just you know join is is the thing we concentrate quite a lot on, and then sometimes people talk about the retention. Mm. But actually, they don't often talk about the the getting mm. involved aspect of mm. being in, in a union. And I think partly, one could argue this is where the teacher unions, the education unions have sort of focused because it's been the thing that they've had to really sort of
1: focus on. Because well, we needed a point of difference. There's enough of exactly. out there yeah, exactly. that we needed a USP.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, so, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you... You're not just thinking you join as a member, you've also got to think about then how people can get active and mm. their roots into activity and mm. how you kind of communicate that. And very often, as unions, we don't think about that joined communication message from the mm. beginning all the way
1: through. It feels very kind of disjointed. And we pass our members from one department to another. Instead of thinking about them as, um, oh, don't shoot me down, customers. But fundamentally, yeah. got, they make a choice. They make a choice to be in a union, yes or no, and then they make a choice about which union they're going to be in. And if, that's, if those are the choices that they make, there is a journey from that moment when they, when they first hear about us to they first make that decision, and every step of the way until they're, I don't know, national president or general secretary. But do you know what I mean? You have to take them, you have to put yourself in their shoes and, and, and go in, with them. And that
0: includes once they've decided to join, once they actually join, and then the first contact, the first contact they have with the union, mm. right, the first time they pick up the phone and try and speak mm. to a rep, whether it's, it's local, regional, national, yeah. whatever, that may be the only time. Yeah. That, you know, you only, you know, you only yeah. get one chance to make a first impression, as it were. So yeah, you know, the, the notion of treating members as customers is to some people controversial, to some people perhaps even still heretical, but mm. actually there's a quality of service issue that matters, and I think Becky, what you said a moment ago mm-hmm. uh, about the widely felt, widely dealt—you know, widely
2: felt, deeply felt, widely visible—yeah,
0: that that shows. Why, why putting servicing against organising is a totally spurious mm-hmm. and unhelpful dis- mm-hmm. distinction. It's mm-hmm. about strategic engagement. Well,
1: if you don't know what your members care about because you're not collecting the data from them, they do make that phone or email conversation, and you can't spot the trends that are coming through in casework in order to a yeah. get back to the workplaces and organise around them. B create some policy that you could take to government and make a difference with, and then C go back to through the communications channels say because you've told us that X Y Z is important. To you, you should join us, and, and together we will solve X, Y, Z. Then you don't stand a chance. So I don't, I, I don't see them. I see them um, in partnership. I don't see them in conflict. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, th- I don't even
2: think it's it, it, it's about using to some extent about using those terms. What we're talking about fundamentally is organising. I mean, everybody has different definitions of organising. I've got mine, so we'll just go with that.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I. Don't, <laughs> Everybody's like, right, we're off. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, but, like, I don't see it as synonymous with recruitment. Like, on the get-go, I don't mm. see... Recruiting isn't, to me, organising. It could be a part of organising. It might
1: be the start of the journey.
2: Well, yeah, but just in terms of, actually, really, organising is about, to me, building a, a an org- a union, an organisation, that reflects the people who are involved in it, that enables them to make the decisions Mm. to affect change wherever that may be. And we're about, then as as kind of union officers, we're about empowering people to be able to do that and to give them a sense of hope and Mm. to help that kind of journey. Now, you both like, have heard about the concept of strategic choice, mm. and my first real practical experience of, of strategic choice was not through reading about it and understanding it. It was simply our colleague Mark Holding going, mm. "Here's the change in landscape, and here's the change that we're going to have to make in order for kind of this to happen." And I much prefer us to sort of think about kind of strategic choice as opposed mm. to kind of organising when we're talking about the kind of the operational aspects, or even this sort of strategic decision making, but that organising is a bit more about the values that we kind of have. Yeah,
0: well, maybe I should
2: go. Uh, there might have been a question there, I don't know. I just thought <laughs> maybe I'd have pined for about the years. Well,
0: The notions of strategic choice, which sounds, it sounds like buzzword or, 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 or jargon, but a, yeah. actually, I mean, it's a paper by David Vile, isn't it? Yeah, W E I L, David. Turning the right. Tide. So, 2004, 2005, an American guy was. Yes. was
2: You're um, so dweeby. We've got we, the
0: numbers. <laughs> this is, this is <laughs> well, basically, basically, the the, the, the modern strategic point choice sure, basically, basically says, right, <laughs> listeners, before you go, I think, oh, I've got bad enough this, is right, you, in everything you do, and every decision you make, you should you should say, Is this increasing my influence? Yeah. Is it increasing my capacity or the yep. organisation's capacity? If you don't get a yes to both questions, don't do, don't it. do it.
1: Don't do it. And I think that's where um Smaller unions with fewer people and less resource can make those decisions. And I think when you, you know, literally when you don't have that much time or money to do something, you have to look at what's in front of you and prioritize it yeah. really, really carefully. You can't fight on all fronts. You, you, you yeah. pick your battles and all sorts of mixed metaphors from the military. But you basically have to choose where you're going to s- deploy, your, deploy your people and spend your money. And, and that's what we did a lot at ATL. And the, the big thing for us was about capacity in the workplace mm. and representation in the workplace, as well as policy influence. And also that, as Mary would always say, join up, join in, get on. And that getting on was our USP, where we would take them and do really, really good CPD with them that expanded them as professionals, but also started to drag, drag that idea that they could come into the union and make a difference within the union. It wasn't, it wasn't your sort of mm. um, what you might think of your archetypal industrial strategy or um, union strategy around well you'd want to be a rep, to support your colleagues, wouldn't you? We had to take them on a, 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 we took them on a different journey, which demonstrated the value mm. of what they could do for themselves and their colleagues and then say, would you like to be a rep? Which I think fundamentally is an organising principle. Mm.
0: Well, uh, if you want to know more about the ATL's kind of organising strategy and the way in which they looked at continuing professional development as a way to engage members, we've got a great podcast with Mary Brouster talking about how the ATL used that as a strategy to mm. great effect. And if you look on the podcasting platform of your choice, you'll find it under our Masterclass series from, from last summer. But, Vic, you've said, you said time and time again that the ATL saw itself as small, you know, mm-hmm. the third largest teaching union or the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Well, you might have been the third largest teaching union, yeah. but you still have over 100,000 members. 170,000
1: 170, yeah. members.
0: 170,000 yeah. hard, members. That's hardly a kind of like what. Uh, uh, yeah, no,
1: I know my uh, my print bill certainly told me that it wasn't small. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. I mean, it was just, you know, within the education sector, we were the, we were the third largest. But we, um, we worked very hard to keep ourselves modern, relevant, and we enjoyed innovation and entrepreneurial ideas. And, and, yeah. and as a result of that, I think we were very well-liked, very well-received by our members. And, of course, you know, moving forward with the National Education Union, I'm hoping that that sort of entrepreneurial, innovative streak continues. And, of course, now that the um, National Education Union is so much larger with so more people and so much more resources and opportunity to put the best of both unions together to to be carry on with innovation and entrepreneurial techniques as well as with the volume of member voice which should you know really influence government policy and government decisions
0: yeah to coin a phrase it's kind of like member centred trade unionism which is sounds a, it should be natural but it you know it sounds a bit odd really just saying it well
1: I think some trade unions um, and, um, and there's no reason to be proud of this have got such a strong active base that the, the voice of the profession lives within that activism and not necessarily dips down into sort of you know your member in the workplace. And I think it's quite important, especially for continuity and as our um, memberships get older to make sure that you're, you know, you're recruiting from, from um, a wide range of members with different views uh, different demographics because otherwise you're not going to be relevant and some of the um, structures that ATL put in place, and I know the National Education Union have put in place, is, in that, is about committees that really reflect the different career stages of members, so we had um, ATL Future, mm-hmm. which wasn't necessarily a rep-based committee, it was more about um, just uh, younger members of the profession getting together to talk about the issues that yeah, affected those network. younger members. It was yeah. a more a network, wasn't yeah. it? it was a, yes, it was a network. Um, it was a network of uh, people who wanted to share what it was like to be a trainee, an NQT, and an early professional. And obviously it helped us, because then we could defi- you know, create our policies around our policy positions around the issues that matter to the the up-and-coming members who we wanted not only to keep in the union, but really wanted to keep in the profession with such a high turnover. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we we merged with the Association of College Management in the 2000s as well to bring on a leadership offer that we call the Association of Managers in Education, because what leaders need um, in education is different from what a classroom teacher needs in education. It's it's more, I don't know, um, the more difficult Areas of raising funds, or HR, or um, IT, you know, the things that it is like to manage and lead leader-manager school. But it was very important that we had this approach to the whole education workforce, um, from uh, trainee up to leader, because then we could, then each school could see the whole picture and the things that were affecting them all. Mm-hmm. And they actually helped when we were going in and, and dealing with challenging and difficult conversations in the workplace but if you dial that all the way through the committee structures and then dial it all the way up to the national executive where you have these people elected onto the uh, you know an ATL future role or a, a leadership role then they could talk about them in the national policy making forum as well and you just share that information in a way that just makes it really back real and relevant to our members and that virtual circle continues yeah
0: wow that's a really holistic not just vision but approach which is That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Vic, thank you so much. That's great. And actually, listeners, we're going to be seeing rather more of Vic in in the future than we have in the past, which can only be a good thing, because she's joined uh, the Union 21 team as the Associate Director for Communications.
1: Yes, I'm very much looking forward to working with you. Um, I've worked in education quite a long time now I've worked with various charities, membership um, organisations, but particularly trade unions and I think there's much that these sectors that um, re- represent an advocate and support for different groups of so people can learn from each other, so I'm looking forward to learning even more. <laughs> and of
2: course, Book's already started working with us on the Commission for Collective Voice and with a couple of our smaller unions to look through some of their member engagement stuff, so we're really pleased that we could do that with them.
0: Excellent. Well, listeners it's been, as ever, our pleasure to have you with us for, for this podcast. We have you have liked what you've heard. I hope it's been good food for thought. I've certainly, certainly got my uh, grey matter churning over.
2: Okay, so if anybody is as much of a geek as Simon or myself, you might want to read the Turning the Tide uh, book by David Boyle, which I would recommend you get it out via your library because it is quite an
0: expensive book. But well worth reading, I assure you. So... Ooh,
2: with that in mind...
0: With that in mind... Um, that's about it for this podcast, listeners. We have very much enjoyed having your company along. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, then tweet us at unions21. Subscribe to our podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice.
2: And rate us. Please say you like us on that pod
0: podcast platform of your choice. And if you've got an idea for what you think we should be covering in future podcasts, we'd love to hear your views. Email us at info at unions21.org.uk. Thank
2: you very much for the suggestions we've had so far.
0: It's been really helpful indeed. So we'll be back uh, in about 10 days or so. Uh, We will be talking to Swedish Unions, Unionen, have I pronounced that wrong? (laughs) Unionen. Unionen. Sorry, my Swedish is appalling, as you may have gathered. Um, uh, We are
2: furiously watching BBC4 Scandi programmes in order to perfect our Swedish. Uh,
0: Because Unionen, who represent members?
2: They represent uh, white-collar workers, they're part of TCO, so we met them when we went over in the summer, and they've got 600,000 members. Wow, 600,000, Sweden's only quite.
1: Nine million people. people.
0: Gosh, that's, that's something. I'm, I'm jealous
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they're, they're, they're paying a reciprocal visit to us uh, in the next couple of weeks and we'll be talking to them on our next podcast so in the meantime it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me goodbye The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper It was a makes-you-think production.